listening and Snap No Tap Podcast. Tony Cicchini here with, of course, the one and only Joe Cardinal. People come from literally all over planet Earth. And maybe if there's life out there, um, well, then, no, if they were listening, then that would prove it wasn't intelligent life. But anyway, they're coming from all over for Joe Cardinal. But uh, and we're going to have a special guest that Joe will introduce in a few minutes. But Joe, uh, what's up? How you doing, kid? Doing good. I'm living large. I got some homemade tacos from some neighbors today, with, along with some Puerto Rican rice. You can't ask for much more than that. So I'm living large today and happy to be around. How about you, Tony? What's going on with you? Uh, let's see. Well, we got the seminars coming up this coming weekend, uh, which would be the 19th and the 20th. The 19th at Bender Martial Arts and Fitness from 12 to 2. And then the next day, the 20th at DuPage Krav Maga from 10 to two, uh, 12, from 10 to 12 um, with Chuck May. So uh, that, and let's see what. Well, before we go any further, sorry, I got to interrupt, but there's a time shift at Bender's. We have to do it oh, a little we're... bit later. So everybody note, it starts at 1.30. He's now got, um, uh, what do you call it, a capoeira class on Saturday. So he just keeps adding more and more classes uh, so he's asked us if we could do a time shift. So please note that that it's just starting. Okay, a I wish uh, somebody would have informed me because I I've had it up on my website as twelve to two for the last. Consider month. yourself. Yeah. So we just found this out. So breaking news. So go ahead. What else, Tony? Well, yeah. Uh, well, that kind of screws my schedule up too. You know. So uh, now I'm going to have to rearrange. Because I had planned to go to the nursing home uh, at a certain time to see my mother. So now uh, I'm going to have to try to get a hold of the nursing home tomorrow. Um, so, nope, I'm not so happy about this last minute shit. Um, so you take it away. I don't really want to talk now. I got to cool down because this is not, this is kind of rude and ignorant, to be honest with you, last minute like this. So you take it. Okay. Well, I'm happy, really excited about this interest. The last few episodes we've had. We've had some really great guests. We've had our friend Russell Stutley on once again, back on. And then we had uh, before that, you know, a, a really list, a great list of uh, guests here. So check out our previous episodes, but I'm really happy to introduce Greg Malay. Greg, welcome to the show. Glad Thanks to have you on. Thank you. So um, and glad to have another Italian in the house. We're oh, so yeah. We've got a threesome, right? There you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That that <laughs> didn't come out right at all. <laughs> um but uh Greg has a really interesting and a unique martial arts background, which I think a lot of our listeners, one of the things I'm always proud about this podcast is we have a very diverse 
group of uh, people who've trained with us and who are friends in our contacts. And so we're able to share their stories and, and their unique perspective on the martial arts. And this is just another exciting example of that. Um, so, Greg, um, let's start about with, you know, well, I guess I can introduce you. You, you basically are in a, in a martial art that's kind of under the, under the umbrella called HEMA, Historical European Martial Arts. Would you mm -hmm. agree with that? And then you kind of a part of a subset of that. Uh, kind of focused on the Italian martial arts. Correct. Um, but you didn't start with that. So where did you kind of grew up in the Chicagoland area? And then did you, like, when did you start doing athletics and martial arts? Yeah, I did. Um, you know, I grew up in the, you know, the 70s and 80s during the martial arts boom in Chicago. Uh, back in the days when, if you lived in Chicago, um, it was, you know, during the the tail end of the Count Dante era. So uh, when it was the city that Black Belt magazine wouldn't uh, run any information about because of all the dojo busting and, uh, you know, the era of uh, the ninjutsu craze and the Chung Mu Kwan karate cult and all that crap. So Chicago was kind of a crazy uh, time growing up to be in the martial arts world. Um, I managed to avoid almost all of that, however, and uh, I actually... Um, I studied a couple of different things uh, through my teens and into my 20s. Um, I had a background mostly in, uh, um, besides sport fencing, uh, in um, jiu-jitsu and Aikido, uh, traditional jiu-jitsu, not BJJ. And um, so that was my original background. And then it went into kendo. And, um, but, you know, part of my, my big interest, and I, I really blame, I blame my dad for this, um, you know, back when we were kids, there was that show, uh, Family Classics every Sunday, right? Where they would like show all the old like Westerns, and swashbucklers and war movies and stuff. And so I'd always watch that with my dad. And so, um, you know, I grew up with this interest on, on uh, sword fighting and, and nightly combat and swashbuckling. And, um, but nobody seemed to know how any of that was done. And uh, so, um, I always had an interest in that and that was sort of what eventually led me to down this path that uh, I've been on now for the last 30 years. Um, so I guess the, probably the question is, well then what is it you do? And the, the answer is that what makes HEMA a little different than a lot of living martial arts is that um, it's a reconstructed martial art, meaning that it's, it's a, there's a broken transmission. And, um, you know, basically if you were to ask people how they fight in the middle ages, we can answer that now. But if someone were to tell you that they're part of an unbroken line of people who've been doing that since the middle ages, uh, you would know they were full of shit. So yeah, um, there's a lot you know, of that in the martial arts. <laughs> no, no, there's absolutely no, there's absolutely no, uh, you know, BS lineage stories in the martial arts. Right. Yeah. And, um, so, yeah. So the difference here is that, um, what we what we do have is we have you know literally a couple of hundred manuscripts that survive from the 14, 15, 1600s on wrestling, sword fighting, mounted combat, knife defenses, etc. And uh, you know, not surprisingly, you can see you can see the footprint of a lot of our modern grappling, some of our modern fencing and boxing in these things, um, but you know, the world went through a huge amount of change in the, in the modern era, especially, especially as all these things started to morph into Olympic sports. So 
our job over the last few decades has been to uh, a variety of people from different martial backgrounds to look at, all right, how do we take these texts and kind of, um, you know, reverse engineer them? And how do you do that so that you're not just seeing like figure four lock and just doing it the way you learned it in, you know, in Filipino martial arts or in, you know, Aikido or whatever, but how are you doing it the way you actually see it? So you're actually moving in a, in a way consistent with how they would have. Um, and so that's been a big part of it. And so Joe mentioned that what we do is from the Italian tradition. And what's interesting is there are Italian grappling and stick fighting and knife fighting systems that have survived into the modern day. And like so many traditional arts, they're on life support. You know, they're on total life support. In some cases, some of the, the teachers are, you know, well into their 70s now. They only have a handful of students, although the internet has helped with that. Um, but you can see there's a real consistent way that different cultures think about fighting, the way they move aesthetically, um, kinesthetically, et cetera. And so our goal has been try, to try to redevelop these, these arts from Renaissance Italy in a way that seems consistent not only with the texts, but also with the way living Italian traditions think about combat. Well, Greco-Roman wrestling goes all the way back thousands of years. So uh, the Greeks exactly. and the Romans, uh, so wrestling is predates any of the manuals that you have. That's, that's guaranteed. Precisely. Because, Precisely. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Tony, they ask me all the time, well, what does this medieval wrestling look like? And if you were to ask me, since so much of it's about stand-up wrestling, right? Because, yeah. you know, you're fighting on a battlefield in armor. So obviously the last thing you want to do is a bunch of, of ground fighting. Sure. So it has it has something like a cross between a you know a, a Greco and a freestyle um, feel to it. Um, there's certain things you don't see a lot of again because of the context of armor, right? You don't see a lot of chokes or submissions. You're seeing more throws, breaks, you know, uh, pretty pretty hard straight arm bars. Things that can be used very quickly to either just dump somebody away from you or do a lot of damage quickly. So it's definitely a grappling as opposed to straight wrestling. But, you know, you can, you can draw a straight line from a Greek face to these medieval manuscripts to, you know, modern Western wrestling and see the, you know, see the connective DNA. It's not like, not like wrestling was an unknown in the Western world. So. Right. I mean, pretty much that's really where it started. Well, you, nobody knows, but they, they have drawings on, Ancient tombs, uh, the most famous is the Beni Hassan. They're showing mm -hmm. double wrist locks. They're showing leg rides. Um, they're, they're, they're showing arm, uh, like, now, uh, like chicken wings and so on. So uh, how, it, how it gets from point A to point B to point C, you know, who knows? But it's, you know, it's... It's the it's, same it's, primates, right? It's the same Yeah, it's a long... Yeah. yeah, most of us that that uh, that dig into this history of sports um the rule of thumb is that wrestling is probably the second oldest sport track and field is number one the oldest uh just running in, in whatever field events they would have to do run jump to survive uh right. no way to prove it you know it's just speculation and archaeological finds but uh yeah for sure wrestling uh in in many like the pancration, okay, or some people call it the pancration. That was a combat oriented thing. It's sport, but like you know, pretty rough shit. Like what we do now. Um, right. It's interesting. I'm more curious about uh, this Italian 
current thing, this current Italian martial art uh, thing that you were discussing, your 70-year-old men or something? What's that all about? Sure. Well, so there's a couple of different traditions that survive. So um, in different parts of Italy, most of them are from southern Italy, from either Sicily or from Apulia. Um, And there's uh, there's a couple of different things and they have different names, but they're they're very similar traditions. So the the main things that are usually accompanied with each other is stick and knife. So usually the the knife is a very long Mm. bladed folder. Um, They're going back 100 years ago. They even had these things called the mula knife, like the mule knife, which is basically if you can picture a folder that's got, you know, about two feet of blade and a two feet of handle, it's like a folding sword. Right. Um, but the modern knife is basically a long, straight edged blade, maybe, you know, uh, eight, nine inches long. It's a folder. Um, this was a dueling tradition as well as a self-defense tradition um, by the Apulian tradition was often connected to the Camorra. Um, so it was, you know, part of the honorable societies, which is a nice way of saying the mob. Um, but there's all kinds of dueling codes that survive. And these things are still being uh, being practiced in the north. The knife fighting is much more pragmatic. Um, the knife is sometimes used in a reverse grip. And it also has a grappling style called gambetto, um, which involves hammer fists, uh, joint locks, uh, kicks, uh, simple throws. Um, neck breaks, uh, you know, very, very rough and tumble. It's by tradition associated with with sailors in the port of Genoa, but it's definitely a Genoese style. And that also uses a stick that's about armpit length. And so, you know, these, uh, and this isn't Savat, it, that's its own thing. And there are parts of Italy that have kind of a Savat influence, but these are traditions that seem to be native to Italy. And like I said, other than the, the Gambetto and, and Genoese stick fighting, most of it is from the south of Italy and um, is primarily focused on stick and knife. Although there's also a um, kind of a, a side art that goes with it called that's, that's just referred to as slaps and kicks. But it's basically an empty, an empty hand style that uses kind of the same methods of the walking stick or the knife just when you don't have anything in your in your hands. So. Well, the Sicilian wrestling now, does that have Turkish influence? So, you know, you would think, right, possibly, but we don't see on the South, at least not that I've found, a really strong, close wrestling um, connection, mostly only that one Northern tradition, um, which is strange because we certainly know that even as early as 1900, there was a fair bit of stuff being written on both, you know, Italian style boxing and Italian style wrestling. Um, But like so many things, the two world wars seem to have, you know, just wreaked havoc with the people who taught that. So in the South, it's mostly when you see empty hand stuff with no weapons, it's mostly strike oriented and mostly long distance. Mm -hmm. Um, And even then, like, I got to tell you, this is a funny thing, just to prove that no martial art is pure. uh, There is, um, in one of the Apulian styles there, when you, when you see like this little training, it's kind of a solo form, right? That they put that has been around at least for a few generations. Um, there's a sidekick in it. And I remember, you know, asking my teacher, I was like, where the hell does the sidekick come from? And he's like, well, it originally had a thing called a mule kick, which is basically the person that comes behind you. You're on rocky ground, you slip and you kind of kick like an upper, like a, you know, an upper reverse kick, like a mule. And I said, well, 
when did it change? He said, the 1970s. And I said, why? Huh. He said, Bruce Lee movies. Hmm. He's like, they, you know, that's what kids were interested in. So they stuck a sidekick in there to keep them interested. So it's interesting. Yeah. Well, I know being, I was raised, I'm 100% Italian. I was raised in a big Italian household and, uh, or not a big household, but a big, the Italian, my, my, my grandparents raised me. It was an Italian household. Okay. Sure. So when I mean big, not people wise, which is us three, but immersed in the culture, the music yeah. and everything. Uh, so I know that when my grandfather would talk about how they fought back in the, 20s and 30s you know he boxed but i mean more or less like street fighting and with the italians they they brought their own little rough and tumble thing i don't know if mm -hmm. they got it from over there or if they did it once they came to america but you know um a lot of stilettos a lot of uh yep. switchblades i got one <laughs> you know yep, uh, yep. and interesting right. and way is... huh and that's still what survives there is those exact same blades. And, you know, my, my grandfather came here from Calabria and I remember my dad talking about how, you know, their family were shepherds and they used to fight with shepherd sticks. And, you know, his grandfather had taught him that. And I was like, oh, okay, whatever, dad. But my grandfather was dead by the time I was old enough to ask questions. Okay. And sure enough, you know, that whole idea of fighting with the shepherd stick still alive in Calabria. There's a whole nother tradition there for that too. Um, and a boxing style there, but I haven't seen it. So I don't know what it looks like, but yeah. That's interesting. Uh, well, my grandfather that raised me, they were, he was from the Northern part of Italy, uh, um, Trieste way North. Uh, yep. Whereas my Cicchini thing, we're outside of Rome, uh, pretty much. So, but I didn't really know my, that my grandfather on that side that much. Because uh, he didn't live in Ohio, he lived in PA. I lived in in Cleveland, um, but yeah, it was just interesting. Uh, it really, you know, a lot of. I mean, everybody thinks like Asian martial arts, like they're the only people in the world sometimes that fought or had it rough. Man, most of the world had it rough at some point or another. You know? well, and look at what the look at what the term means, right? Martial art, the arts of Mars. So, you know, yeah. and it was literally named for the Roman god of war. And uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's just in our case, you know, our martial heritage now is, you know, a couple of aircraft carriers sitting off the shore loaded up with uh, yeah, right. fighter jets. So, yeah, you know, you, I was just going to say to those points, you know, and when we so we've had some guests on here from, um, you know, some survival school stuff that I've done and they talked about kind of the burden of teaching or trying to advocate learning what some people consider are obsolete skills. Like why learn how to make a fire when you can get a big lighter for a dollar, you know, or less. And, um, you know, I could see that with a lot of, you know, in, in European, and you, you probably have a lot more details on this, but, and a lot, like you said, these traditions are dead because a lot of these skills became obsolete. Once firearms were introduced and things advanced, these things kind of, you know, were not, people didn't practice these things just as a hobby. They were, they were done for real reasons. You know, you needed them for war. And once you had handguns or whatever, there was no point in practicing some of these skills. Uh, but it's interesting that it's kind of come full circle now and where we were kind of realizing the value, um, you know, and I think that's something that we struggle with teaching even hand to hand in, in the American environment, because so many people are concealed carry oriented. Well, why do I need to learn these other skills 
when it's, you know, technology may have rendered some of these things, uh, you know, less effective or less necessary. And you, I think we could argue that that's not always the case. Sometimes you won't have your gun, but I, well, the one thing yeah, I, I think or, that's, or, or, you know, if you, if you are, if you do have your gun and you're going to use it, you have to make that decision that, okay, am I going to kill this person? Cause you can't assume you're right. not going to. Right. Um, so, but you know, I, I think there's an even bigger part of that, Joe, is that we live so divorced as a culture we live so divorced from day-to-day violence compared to earlier generations, but also so divorced from increasingly from just martial culture. You know, I mean, I, I see this just teaching right now, like the students that I get in now who might be teenagers compared to my own generation as a Gen Xer just have a lot less like background, just wrestling, you know, then, and I feel like, you and I, Joe, have a lot less than like my dad's generation did. I mean, it was just to be assumed, you know, my dad was at the very tail end of the greatest generation, right? And, uh, you know, like every single kid he grew up with, they all knew how to box and wrestle and, you know, they could all shoot a little bit. Like it was just, it was just something that boys just learned. It was just an assumption. You know, every single kid in his school had a little exposure to like, you know, CYO boxing at the very least. Um, and you just don't see that now. So we, we just changed so culturally from all of this. Well, you're exactly right because my grandfather was a pro fighter, but a lot of his friends that I I knew, they weren't pro boxers, but they all boxed. Okay. Right. They all they all knew the basics of how to keep their hands up and you know, all of that. Um, so you're correct about that. And there yeah it's just we're living in a different time now you know it's changed and i grew up in this well i was born in the 60s but i grew up in the 70s man you you still you know i started boxing as a young kid uh you know i'm not saying everybody i knew boxed i mean i think i was the only well i had a couple friends that did but even then it started to go away you know where the kids weren't weren't boxing Um, it bothered me, you know? Yeah. And, you know, Joe, coming back to your point, this is, it it happens fast, right? Things change fast once there's no longer a perceived need, you know, you, um, you were talking about how these obsolete skills, well, consider this in the late 1800s, the first time they tried to reconstruct rapier fencing and two-handed swords and stuff. The reason they did that, the reason that that got going in the Victorian era is that you had a number of, of basically, you know, English swordsmen who were like, look, swords are getting used less and less and less on the battlefield. And consequently, fencing is a dying art in our country. Like people just aren't doing it. And they're boxing, but they're not fencing. And so it was a way to try to draw interest was to this idea, if we bring back these older weapons and we, along with that, we're doing saber fencing and bayonet fencing, it'll create this interest. Well, the good news for them was it worked. The bad news was that it worked so well that fencing became an Olympic sport. And what happened was, in the urge to try to homogenize fencing for Olympics, they immediately started dropping anything that wasn't being taught across the board. So not only did they start dropping all these old weapons, you can see, you know, in the first Olympics, they've got stick fighting and bayonet fencing. By the second Olympics, those are gone. By, you know, by the eve of World War I, fencing no longer is teaching 
how to disarm somebody or how to, you know, grapple them for their weapon because mm-hmm. it's not considered seemly for the sport. And then World War I comes in and kills half the fencing masters in Europe. And you see, you know, the idea of what is fencing, what is boxing, what is wrestling become increasingly more stratified to fit this new Olympic ideal. So on the one hand, the Olympic sport probably helped preserve the sports from dying. On the other hand, the need to create a homogenized sport then starts to further di- divorce it from its original intent. And, you know, we can say it's good or bad, but it just is. It's just how people are. They have to have a reason to do something or they won't. So, You know, interesting that you brought up sport fencing because um, a lot of people, yeah, the term fencing, I think, obviously, most people associate it with that. And I always, I've now, you know, since actually meeting you and working with your group and, and trying to understand it a little bit, I kind of feel like the core Western martial arts, if you're, you know, working with Tony, you've got boxing, wrestling, and then to me, the other, you know, dimension to that is fencing. And, and I mean mm-hmm. that in more the old school way, I guess, of saying it. So not in, in kind of the modern sense where people kind right. of, well, yeah. fencing, and, how, and, how and, to help manage a weapon. Yeah, exactly. All fencing means, it comes from the same word as defense, right? It just means using a hand weapon to protect yourself. And that includes, you know, a component of grappling and disarms and weapon retention. Um, But it's funny because like in the area that I'm interested in is particularly the medieval and Renaissance period. What we get repeatedly from these fencing masters is that the art of combat is based in wrestling because it trains the body and that's the universal. So if I'm gonna be an armor, I need to know how to move my body and I need to be able to wrestle, especially because the armor makes it hard to kill somebody at long distance and it may get close. If I'm gonna sword fight, it's gonna to come to, it could come to grips. If I'm gonna defend against a knife, it could come to grips. So the idea is that, you know, you start with wrestling, you add the knife, then you add the sword is, is one training paradigm. Um, and then of course, mounted combat is sort of the whole thing all over again, only now you're doing it on a horse. Um, but over and over and over again, there's this idea that, that yeah, fencing and, and, um, wrestling are the two kind of the two foundations Mm -hmm. and boxing has this strange relationship in Europe where it kind of goes in and out of fashion as its own thing. Right. And probably in part related to, um, the nature of fencing. If, if it's in combat, if it's a combat art where people wear heavy armor, I'm not going to box somebody. What am I going to do? I'm going to punch him in yeah. a helmet. Um, but as it falls out of favor, uh, and you see things like, you know, rapier fencing and long distance uh, thrust fencing, boxing comes back into p- favor. And in fact, one of the terms for a duelist, one of the earliest terms is a pugilatus, right? Pugilist. Right. And one of the earliest terms in English for boxing is fist fencing. So they're, they're very much considered to be interwoven arts. And this idea that they're all separate are really, it's, it's very much a modern thing. You know, it's just, it's just knowing how to defend yourself with the tools of your time. So. Well, there's a lot of technical similarities, believe it or not, for people that are listening or watching uh, between boxing and fencing. Uh, you know, sure. boxing has a lot of mo- motions, you know, thrusting forward and back and things like that and parrying and, you know, they, they, it probably evolved, at least some of the boxers. My one friend who was a champion boxer, Johnny Lira, was big on that. 
boxing took this from fencing and you know things like that um absolutely yeah you know science and you know you know i mean everybody everybody loves to whip out their bruce lee jeet kundo story but i think the part that the part that's relevant is that you know bruce looked at fencing and boxing and was impressed that these two arts had figured out a way to analyze and talk about fighting that Mm. he hadn't seen in asia they had a scientific approach to fighting that was very hard to understand but you know the other thing too is that when you fence with a weapon that's touching each other, you also have to be able to feel sensitivity, right? There's a, a sensitivity thing. And that, of course, is something that we think more of like with wrestlers, that ability to touch somebody, you know, where they're hard or weak or where, they're, you know, where their balance is off. And, and that sort of thing is something very unique also to fencing. So they're really, I think, just all part of one, you know, one long Western tradition of combat, so... Yeah, and it's interesting because, again, w- yeah, like Bruce Lee bringing him up, you know, oh, he was the first mixed martial artist, which is, you know, patently false. Uh, guys had been doing all-in type of fighting for, geez, centuries, you know. Um, Probably since guys had been fighting. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, and I remember, like, well, again, getting back to my grandfather and some of some of the old fighters, um, boxers, they showed me all these dirty tricks, you know, because you, you, you know them, you learn them. Uh, sometimes by happenstance, you accidentally elbow a guy or forearm a guy, but they also knew how to, how to do it purposely. They, they practiced that stuff, you know, blasts and stuff that are illegal in boxing, in the sport aspect of it. But um, just like what, what I do, catch wrestling, there were guys, not many, but there were some that would go, dirty like i like the ripping and the hooks others just uh, okay that wasn't their bag they didn't care but it really was astonishing to me that yeah these 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 old timers we're talking world war ii guys they knew a lot of dirty tricks (laughs) which i thought was cool you know yeah absolutely absolutely so boxing itself sometimes just gets a especially nowadays it just seems like it gets a, a bad rap but uh which, which you always know, amazes me because, like, I tell people this all the time. I'm like, look, if nothing else, just think about this. Boxers exist in an environment where people punch them full force in the face, <laughs> like, as the default. Uh, so if nothing else, these are guys who do not flinch at getting hurt. I've met plenty of, you know, supposed martial artists who have never been punched in the face, like, really punched in the face. You're not going to meet a boxer who will say that. So, um, Yeah, I've I've met martial artists that have actually said well you don't punch you're not going to get punched in the face in a street fight okay i mean i've heard that that phrase uttered and i'm like this person's in a cult because um i mean yeah Yeah, i I gotta say the face punch is my number two concern in the street (laughs) street fight (laughs) i was gonna say they've clearly never watched just even security footage you know video footage of how fights go down like, uh, yeah. like the, the number one thing you see is a guy index with his offhand and then try to punch him, punch him in the face with his other one. So, well, it's a, it's, it's almost inbred in us. It's like a reflex. You'll either grab or you'll just throw a punch, whether it's a trained punch or just a, you know, a crazy haymaker. Right. Um, I mean, it's just <laughs> the way it is. So right. yeah, and this was a black belt that said that too, which was, um, when when you hear a comment like that, I don't even rebut it. I just 
end the conversation and walk away. What are you going to say? Yeah, you can't say anything to someone like that. Um, But uh, getting onto the weapon thing, not your weapons in particular, but like growing up, I've gotten stuck several times. And there was a lot of that happening um, in my area in Cleveland in the 70s. and, And, of course, guns. But the thing is, and I, we've talked about this on a previous podcast, maybe a couple of years ago, uh, you don't see it coming, okay? It's not a dueling situation where they're like, come here, boy, you know, I got the knife out. No, you'll, at least in my cases and others that I've known, it, it's almost luck that you, you survive. And then you got to learn to move and not be a standing, you know, you, you can't be a sitting duck. You got to move around. Uh, so some schools that I've taught at where I see them like basically dueling with a knife, um, which is great. I mean, it's a good thing, but you know, that's, I never encounter that in real life. <laughs> no, and you know like, like even coming back to the Italian stuff, like I said, there's a dueling tradition to those knives, but notice what I just said. There is also a dueling tradition. Like, it's literally right. These people were fighting formal duels. Yeah. Where we've agreed to this. Yeah. But, you know, people mistake dueling, which is certainly dangerous as hell and, and a real thing, um, but with self defense. And like right. you said, you know, a, a street encounter, like, for example, just with the art that I teach, 90% of the dagger material we have is empty handed versus the dagger, even though you can see this guy wearing the thing on his belt, right? Because the point is, you haven't deployed it. It's it's not an equal fight. And like you said, you know, half the time knives come out, it's an assassination. It's not a fight. It's an assassination. Um, and so I, I think that's one of the things that people also have. Again, movies give us this, this idea that like we're going to both drop back, you know, draw our knives, guns, whatever, and like, you know, duke it out. It's, no, someone just pulls a, a weapon and tries to murder you. Yeah, you're you're hitting the nail on the head. You're talking my lingo because that's true. And the dueling aspect of it, just like sport grappling or just sport martial arts, that's great. And sometimes you can practice certain techniques and safely and, and hone your skills that way. Um, but you, I don't believe that you, you know, I'm not saying this about you, but like I've always told my students or people that I know, don't get a false sense of security because it's not real what's happening here. Like, you know, I, I'll stick a thumb in your eye before I go for a real complicated technique in a street fight. Okay. Right. And that changes everything. Um, the other thing too, is uh, I was going to say about uh, guns. Uh, and we hear about it all the time. Drive-bys. I was a victim of one of those. There was literally no chance in my case to do anything. Okay. I turned, he was in a car in the, in the street I'm on the sidewalk. I turn around and boom, he pulls the trigger. Uh, nothing anybody in the world could do. You know, I got lucky but uh, that he didn't shoot me in the head. But right. once again, it's, it's not the movies. Okay. It's not the movies. And you can hear about it every day in Chicago, drive by shooting, drive by shooting. Um, it, yeah, it, it's, not that the dueling or not that the, you can't disarm. I mean, we've had instances where people have pulled guns. I've had it later in life, but they never, they never pulled the trigger there, you know, with the pistols. That's a whole different story. But, um, yeah, I just wish people would s- start seeing, seeing it really as 
reality as opposed to everything like a sport. Right, um, right. And when you when you see these older arts that have all these, you know, weapon retention or weapon stripping techniques, it's not because this is it's it's specifically because your odds you're on the wrong end of this fight if the yeah. person's pulling a weapon and you don't have one. So it's like, no, I'm making you train all this so that you have some hope in hell of this working if you have to use it. Um, not because, you know, compared to the knife dueling stuff we have, you know, here's four techniques. How much do you really need to know? Stick him in the hand, cut his hand, you know, Bob weave, stick him in the face. The knife does a lot of the work, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's unfortunately I, coming back to what we said earlier, I think because we are so, so many people are so removed from the cultures that have produced even, you know, even an art like catch, which is really part of the modern world, but, but just our world has changed. Um, it's really easy for people to build a myth around themselves about what they think they're learning. Yeah. You know? Well, I see it in grappling schools. You know, there's no reality training. There's no, it's just ground fighting. Nothing about weapons, nothing about, well, you just put this person in the range where if they do have a concealed weapon, you're, you're dead. Okay. Yeah. Um, it, 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 but that's okay because I don't think they're actually um, proclaiming that what they're doing is self-defense. They're they're teaching it for sport. But as long as these people realize it and don't try to do these moves, um, right. then the, no harm, no foul. But I I know and I've read of stories even here in Chicago a few years ago where uh, a pretty high-ranking BJJ guy got almost killed in a street fight because he couldn't handle that kind of a situation. It was a yeah, two-on-one like probably, probably tried to pull guard, right? So, Well, yeah, I don't know. The, all I know mm. is that it happened on the lakefront. Uh, two guys were beating somebody up or mugging somebody, and he was a big dude, This the good guy. He tried to intervene, and these two guys just beat the shit out of him, put him, literally hospitalized him, and he was touch and go. Uh, so he didn't have the training to to deal with two on one, you know, sure. which is a whole different world. Yeah. I'll, I'll just digress a little bit on that topic about because uh, you may not be aware of this news story, Tony, but I think just a few months ago, a world champion Brazilian jujitsu guy, I mean, one of you know one of the best, got into a bar fight, subdued the guy temporarily you know, disarmed him. Cause I think the guy came at him with a bottle. I don't know all the details, but he subdued the guy, let the guy go. The guy just came back and shot him and killed him. One of their great champions was killed. And again, that kind of goes to the don't confuse, you know, <laughs> there's different strategy when, when you're on the street, you know, you've got to think differently than I've just won the match. Like, you know, I think we've talked about this in self-defense contests. It's like, you know what, if I just had a physical altercation, it's time to get out of Dodge. Even if I've won that, he may call his buddies, the police may show up. So the fact that he stayed in place at this, you know. And and, say, don't, don't keep hanging out in the same bar celebrating with your buddies. Right. Um, and it's tragic. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah. yeah and, uh, but it's just, again, confusing the difference between, you know, combat sports and life or death situations. Um, you know, no one to run, no one to leave. And yeah, he, like I said, he assumed because he bested this guy that the thing was over. And it's like, it is not over at that point. And well, yeah. I got to tell you on that note, because yeah, because this guy was obviously some world champion or whatever. So 
you know, he probably had, you know, he should have had an advantage and the other guy just needed some backup. Well, I remember when I was taught, I, I remember asking Leon Spinks one time. Now, Leon was raised in East St. Louis, rough area. Yeah. And I asked Leon once, I said, um, how good of a street fighter were you? And I'll never forget his answer. He says, I don't know. It was never a fair fight. Right. See, and that's the point because they, he was known in his hood. Um, so it, it, it wasn't going to be a one-on-one. Nobody was suicidal. So you, you have to assume that, especially if I don't know this situation with the jujitsu guy, but let's just pretend that everybody there knew that he was a champion uh, jujitsu guy. So they're going to want to try to even the score a little bit. Okay. Um, and yeah, you're right. You either finish that guy and incapacitate him or make sure that he goes away in handcuffs. But yeah, you still really want to try to get out of there, you know, because you don't know. Uh, and that's the stress of it all. The fight's not always over when you think it's over. Okay. There's always getbacks. And you hear about bouncers uh, getting stabbed or getting killed. They throw somebody out or some shit and the guy comes back. Okay. You got to watch for that. Like when they started this smoking ban, um, cause I used to bounce and the smoking ban. Uh, one of the things that I didn't like about the smoking ban was people are constantly going outside smoking and coming back in. Okay. So you don't know what's happening here. Cause you're not watching everybody under a microscope. You see somebody go outside and now they're coming back in. Well, are they smoking or did they go outside to get a weapon or some shit? You don't know. Okay. So that kind of makes you, uh, you know, be on high alert. Uh, yeah, it, it's a, we're living in a different dynamic. Um, and now with the concealed carry or open carry in certain areas, you almost have to assume everybody's packing. Now what? Right. You know, and, and that scares me, especially when there's alcohol involved. I don't want, even if I'm not involved in the thing, I don't want some half drunk guy getting pissed, pulling out his gun and missing people. You're missing the guy, you know, trying to shoot somebody and missing and hitting people. You know, that's what worries me. Um, I wanted to circle back a little bit because I made an observation. I'm kind of regretting that I, when I, I used the term obsolete and I think perceived obsolete is maybe more what I should have said. Um, Cause one of the things, and I'll make this observation about what I appreciate from learning fencing and the way we described it is kind of, Western weapons, I guess, is that so whenever I'm going to evaluate a technique that I'm learning, whether it's grappling or striking, I always kind of go back to like, let's say a certain striking technique. If I did this test said technique that I've seen, would I be vulnerable to a boxer? Would I, am I exposing my head? Am I exposing, you know, am I, is this somehow violating the rules I learned from boxing or wrestling? So could someone take me down if I did this technique? So it was kind of a a baseline for me, how to evaluate new information coming in. And sometimes I can add to my repertoire, like maybe like, let's say a Muay Thai elbow or something that doesn't violate my boxing skills per se. I can mix that in and still be safe from a boxing or wrestling perspective. And I think that's also very true. Um, I think people who are interested in weapons martial arts should seriously consider learning the Western tradition of fencing. And again, not modern sport fencing, although I'm sure there's some of that it's leaked through there. But one of the valuable things, you know, I think about like a lot of the, you know, Filipino or Asian uh, weapons arts is, you know, 
to me, the principles of, of, of these fencing are very similar. I think you kind of alluded to this earlier, similar in, in their kind of empirical approach to fighting that boxing and wrestling are. There are rules of how to fence. You know, I need to control his weapon before I go in. I need to, you know, uh, there's a term finding someone's sword you know, and things like that. There's reasons for that. You know, there's reasons why I think in some of the things you taught is you don't just go for a leg shot because there's just geometry there that exposes my head with certain weapons. Uh, so there's a very much like there's rules in boxing and wrestling that to me uh, are kind of universal for human safety. I think that also pertains to a lot of these historical fencing arts. And it's a good uh, baseline to start learning these things and, and head in that realm. I don't know if you found that as well, Greg. Um, well, obviously, so I mean, you have devoted yourself to it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and it's funny because, of course, when you're learning an art from another culture, um, you know, in your, if you're learning in a traditional way, you're learning, and I'm not talking about you're learning to count in Japanese or something. I'm just talking about, you know, you're learning how they conceptualize things, right? And the problem is, um, it isn't your culture. So you're, there's already an inherent layer of trying to understand how, you know, you might conceptualize how to control, how to control an opponent's weapon, how to control distance, and how a Japanese or a Chinese might say that in their own language compared to you. Then you're also learning this in an archaic sense, right? Because it's not even necessarily how somebody modernly in Japan might say that. It's how somebody in Japan 200 years ago might have phrased that. Um, so one of the things about Western fencing and boxing is that there was this whole approach towards, you know, approaching things scientifically. So there's, there's this, um, the, the language that's couched is language that we're used to because we've grown up with it. But, you know, so just simple things like you make an, you make, you create a threat before you create a target, right? So, you know, whether that is you extend your arm to lunge with a sword or, you know, you throw a punch before you step your, your face into measure, um, it, it just, it doesn't matter. It's still the same idea. You create, you know, you move undercover, you find their weapon sword, or you control, right? You control their lead hand, or, you know, whatever terms we want to use for it. They're slightly different terms. Sometimes they're exactly the same. You know, any any fencer understands what a what a void is. Any boxer understands what a parry is. Um, you know, or a slip. And yeah. uh, but that's because they they grew out of this common technicality. And so, yeah, one of the things that's interesting about about the weapon end of things is that um, they are force multipliers and they're also distance multipliers, right? Um, so it forces you to think about fighting at a different, at a different range um, in a way that obviously a projectile weapon doesn't because that's a whole different thing. Um, but, you know, I, I backed into grappling arts by coming to them from weapon arts. So I never thought that was going to be something I was going to really like. And I was wrong about that. Um, and I've had some students go the, you know, the opposite direction. But I think at a certain point, you start to realize that whether there's a tool in your hand or no tool at all, it's the same human body and the same human mind doing the fighting. And you start to realize that it, it's all useful. Um, it's all useful as long as, like Tony said, you know, maybe five minutes ago, you remember what the hell you're training for. You know, like if you want to do competitive, you know, competitive gi or no gi BJJ, there's nothing wrong with that. Just understand that you're training 
to compete in a sport that's maximized for fighting, for doing ground fighting, right? And, you know, don't mistake that for something else. If you want to study, you know, modern self-defense combatives or, you know, World War II military combatives, you know, know that that's focused on quick, brutal self-defense, probably not maximized for entering a, you know, a friendly uh, grappling competition. You know, know what you're training for. And, uh, and it, it's probably good. So, but I, I do feel that one thing about weapon arts is that because you can't take, you know, you, you might be able to take a punch, but you definitely can't take a sword thrust through the head. Um, yeah. It does force you to treat every single engagement with this idea of absolute lethality. So the, the language of fencing is all about not getting hit. And I think that's useful for any fighter to study. You know, the other thing too to to piggyback off of that what you just said about the lethality because i i've always said that you have to any street encounter you have to assume that your life's on the line okay there's never any i never relax i don't care if it's a 10 year old kid you know they could pull a gun and blow you away so the thing with that the reverse of that is there are people that i especially where i live now out here that they uh, they conceal carry. They really don't go to the range. They're not marksmen. They, you know. But I've tried to tell them, are you mentally prepared to live with yourself for the rest of your life after you've shot uh, or, worst case, killed somebody? Do you understand fully the ramifications of this? Besides the legal ramifications, okay? Just the the psychological ramifications of maybe paralyzing someone or or killing someone. Um, these are things that the people that I know are not prepared to handle. They're not there. They don't think about all of that. They just don't care. They're like, I don't give a shit. Somebody tries to rob me, I'm going to boom, boom, boom. Well, they really need to start caring because there's there's more to it than than just pulling a gun and shooting somebody, at least mm-hmm. in my belief. Yeah, and, you know, right. And it's like, if you don't have the moral or ethical framework to care about that, you might want to at least care about the legal framework of it, right? And, um, but, you know, I, I think anybody who's been around actual violence will tell you that the ex- exposure to violence changes people. And I think, you know, I, I have had over the years some of the strangest, you know, reasons people have come in. Like my, my favorite was still the guy who, wanted, who came in and wanted to take sword lessons because he rode the L all the time and he didn't like guns. So he thought he'd just carry a sword. I was like, you're, you're going to what? Like, he's like, well, I mean, guns just don't seem fair. I'm like, you're worried about someone trying to kill you on the L and you're worried about fair. And, and also you do understand that like three feet of sharp steel will murder someone just as, just as dead. Right. And, and now you're going to try to explain to a jury why you thought you were Conan. Um, You know, everybody understands guns in America for good or ill. We understand guns. You tell them, Oh yeah. So I had my concealed short sword, um, you know, and uh, good luck with that. Um, but like my, my, but my point is that, you know, this is exactly to your, to what you were saying about people detach the consequences of violence from the yeah. movie in their head about, well, there's this, they, and they're going to be there and they're going to do this thing and I need to be ready. Well, okay. Well, and then what, 
Well, well, you then know, I'm good because the movie ended. Yeah. Roll credits. You know, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take off on that too because your guy said I ride the L. I'm afraid of getting killed. Da da da. Out here, these people bash Chicago. Chicago's a war zone to them. Okay. Uh huh. And I always say, well, these are the people who pack. I'm like. How often have you been to Chicago? Well, I don't go to Chicago. I I don't even step foot in Chicago. Well, then why are you packing? Why are you worried about it out here? See, so it's it's and 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 I know enough about psychology to to right away realize there's more to it than this. Okay, these people are walking around in fear of just of their own shadow, really, and they're going to use Chicago as the justification for it well they're killing people in chicago they're carjacking in chicago i want to be prepared no you're you're not you're that's a that's a cop-out there's something deeper with them and by the way these people none of them are trained martial artists or fighters and i think that's the gist of it they look at the gun um in their case the gun there i don't know of anybody that's carrying swords but they're using that as their great equalizer Okay. And they're and they're probably not actually trained with the gun either. So, really, what? Yeah, you know what I mean. I, like the, the number of people who somehow think that because they have have the gun, they're going to be safe. It's like, well, the gun's not going to leap out of its concealed carry holster and fight for you. Right. You have to know how to use it. So, you know, not to mention you need to know how to draw it without blowing your own nuts off. So, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, but it, it is amazing. It, it is amazing. And But I agree with you. That is part of the problem is that we have this very fear-centric culture right now, you know, of the they. And, um, you know, and I think, you know, it, it's, it's funny. We just had yesterday the kind of the equivalent of what, of what we have for rank exams. And uh, um, one of the, the, the young gentlemen who, who tested and, you know, fought publicly, um, I'm going to be vague enough so that if he sees, you know, if, they, if, if classmates see the podcast, they won't know who I'm talking about. But, you know, when he came to us, you know, he was, you know, nice, nice North side kid, you know, desk jockey, um, had never done anything violent in his whole life. And when he first started sparring, first time he ever hit somebody really freaked him out. Then, you know, later on, he's like, maybe I'm not cut out for this. And it's just funny. In the time he's been training with me, like his whole demeanor's changed. You know, he went from being the skinny little kid to hitting the gym all the time to work out, uh, you know, dresses different, acts different. And I don't mean in like a, you know, like a smug, you know, punky kind of way. I just mean like it's given him a chance to confront a lot of the things that he was afraid of or uncomfortable with and become a lot more comfortable in his own skin. And you know, that sort of thing serves you everywhere. Because if you're skittish, if you're, if you're constantly living in this state of fear, how do you function anywhere? How do you function with any kind of conflict in life? And life's one giant freaking conflict. And, and Tony, like you, I'm out in the burbs. And, you know, it is absolutely true. There is a, there's a suburban rabbit quality to people, a certain cadre of them where they just live in constant fear of, the city, whatever that means. And yet they're not in the city. Yeah. I mean, 
it's really it's really a comfortable life out here. So. Well, you know, I'm new to this rural thing, and you know, relatively new. And you, but you hit on this about this kid that came and he trained and trained and trained, and now all the ch- changes. See, I'd have respect for these gun people here if they did that. If they were training 12, 14 hours a week, every week, you know, with the gun and scenarios, first of all, I'd have confidence in them, you know, that if something does happen, they're going to be an ally, okay? Um, They're not going to shoot you by mistake. Right, exactly. But when, when they go maybe three hours a year, I mean, imagine bench pressing just three times a year, okay? And you think you're going to all ultimately add 300 pounds to your bench by working out three times a year. Yeah. They, it, you know, so they don't see this, okay? Um, and and what kind of training, what are they doing? Just shooting at targets, stationary targets, or are they moving a little bit even? Uh, that still is not the same. Like you mentioned, can you draw, okay? Can you conceal it enough so the bad guy's not going to see it? You know, all this, there's so much going on they like one guy i know uh he keeps it in his car okay but the funny thing is he drinks all right so he'll leave the bar now he's got a gun now you got a drunk or maybe he's not even drunk but you got a guy under the influence of alcohol with a gun um and now he's gonna maybe get jump uh he thinks he's gonna get uh, 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 what do you call that? Road rage or something? Now his adrenaline's going to be flying. I mean, I don't. This is a re- recipe for disaster. Yeah. And I like the guy. And I just, you know, I'm not telling him don't carry the gun. Don't get me wrong. I'm not telling anybody not to do that. I'm just telling people make sure you're highly trained. That's all. Just yeah. be skilled. You know. Uh, the people that you know, I know. It's funny you should say that because years ago, my, my wife is uh, from Philly. And, um, you know, years ago before we were together, she uh, had a gun, had a um, concealed carry license. And the reason she got rid of it, gave it up, was because she realized, I don't train with this thing. Ah. And so it occurred to her, carrying it around is probably just a liability for me. I'm just bringing a gun for them to use. Um, two, I don't actually know that I can get it out and use it if I need it. And three, um, I have no idea that I'm prepared to deal with the ramifications of it. So she made a conscious choice. I'm not doing what it needs to have this thing. I need to get rid of it. And, um, you know, I just wish more people would apply that kind of thought process Mm -hmm. to these things. Um, because you know, it's, it's not, it's not a magic it's not a magic hero. No weapon is. And um, so like you said, it's if you're not going to train with it, why do you have it? Now you're just bringing, you're bringing a prop to a possible encounter that actually makes everything worse. Well, you know, I, I can't agree any more than I do. That is perfect. I, I, a lady that I know, she's a flight attendant. And I told her, what if, you know, if, if the pilot had a fatal heart attack, do you want some passenger that watched Top Gun to go in there and, and fly the plane? Of course you would, right? right? It's the same principle here. These people get the gun. They watch right. the movies. You know, they think it's, you know, and they can shoot sideways. They think all this shit. 
Right. Yeah. So I, I, you know, hats off to to your wife to to have the uh, the you know the 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 sense uh, to know that hey I I'm not this is over you know I'm not qualified for this gun. Um, you know I I've been in situations where, like, well, my friend Kevin that got killed in a plane crash. You know, when we would fly, he'd let me fly the plane. Okay, but I didn't take off and I didn't land the damn thing. Okay, I'm flying in the air. Right. I'm not going to land this airplane. You know, if something happened to him while we were flying, we're dead. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, I had a good buddy. Same thing. You know, and yes, I I controlled the stick on on the Cessna. Um, Sure. And had it started raining, he would have taken that away from me immediately. And I sure as hell didn't file a flight plan, and I sure as hell didn't do a damn thing to land that plane. So exactly, you know, and I, and I had no desire to do it either. I mean, yeah. I could have yeah. legally done it with uh, another one of our friends, Gene Garkey, who's a uh, an instructor. But I, I mean, I don't want to fly. I don't want to land an airplane. All right, yeah, uh, exactly. This is not my thing. But you, you know, but getting back to the. To the you know to, to to the other thing with the weapons is and I and I've mentioned this on my Snap No Tap uh, podcast or I mean uh, not podcast uh, video series uh, if I don't have any weapons on me okay which is the way I'm rolling um, and you do now okay what may have been an argument just a verbal thing and you you draw on me or I know that you're about to draw. Uh, you now have just given me uh, almost like the gateway to to use deadly force because now I think you're going to kill me, and mm. I'm going to snuff you, man, with my bare hands, and it's your fault. Okay, um, so I remember as a kid, like my stepdad and other old timers would say about guns, uh, don't pull out that gun unless you plan on using it. Okay, mm-hmm. that's what they always used to say. Because you're 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 opening up a bigger can of worms than you probably want to. Okay, that's right. escalating shit. So, not always wise to do it unless you really feel your life's in danger. Uh, but I, I've seen these hotheads and wholesome people. They they get all worked up. Now, thank God these people aren't carrying, but. They get so worked up over shit, okay, not threats, but like to argue over politics or sports or something. Right. Man, if they had a gun, there'd be some there'd be some trouble here. So I'm yeah. assuming it would be the same with the knives and the blades, you know, those swords. I mean, of course, right? Of course. We, you know, people don't change. We might like to think we do, but at a certain fundamental level, we don't. You know, and we see, um, you know, here's a here's a funny thing. There's a long time ago, I did a dig through on the coroner's rolls from uh, England in like the 1300s. Right. One of the most common reported things were um, people getting into knife fights or just brawls. But also, you know, the number of people who tripped in the dark and fell on their on a knife multiple times. (laughs) <laughs> walking, walking home right? right which is obviously the coroner being like i have no idea who murdered this bastard so yeah. i'm gonna but you know but the point is like people don't change and so like you said if if, if you bring the weapon there you increase the chance it's going to get used and um 
you know, so it's um probably the only difference is, you know, a lot of those earlier eras, people may have been more trained with them. Although even there, you know, I got to tell you, there's a lot of really pristine rapiers and dueling swords that survive in museums where it's pretty clear whoever bought this thing never used the damn thing. He just had the money to wear it around like a piece of bling. So, you know, a part of me does wonder how many of these, you know, these guys strutting around with their swords were no different than the guy, you know, than some dude down in Texas open carrying his, his nice, uh, you know, silver plated 357 that he probably, like you said, probably fires three times a year, you know? Um, and, but I guess what that tells us is that's a type of person too. So, well, I, yeah. And I mean, again, if you got the gun, it's your choice, you know, but I, I would highly recommend just getting good with it, you know, world-class <laughs> marksmanship you know, yeah. and everything else. Um, but like the old timers, you know, like wild west and before that, there's that expression, you couldn't hit a broad, the broad side of a barn. Those guns that we had back in the 1700s weren't that accurate, okay? Uh, so, you know, that that's another thing that people, they, they kind of fantasize about the Old West. And I remember reading that there were certain towns, it might have even been Dodge City, the famous Dodge City, where you had to check your gun at the oh, yeah. sheriff's office, you know, at the jail when you came to well, town. The, the, yeah, the the irony of this, and you know, I don't want to go too down this um, rabbit hole because depending on who watches the podcast, but you know, the irony of it is we have this idea that somehow the idea of you know regulating weapons is a, a phenomenon of the modern era, and it's like you know, two years after the Constitution was passed, the city of Philadelphia created a city armory, so you know, and it was upheld by the Supreme Court. You know, in the Middle Ages there were bans all the time on in supposedly, you know, wild West or the middle ages, there were bans on what weapons you could wear around town and when and who, you know, and otherwise mm -hmm. things had to stay in your house. Um, so it, it's not like, you know, it, it's not like it's ever been a free for all that, that again, that's, that's a fantasy we tell ourselves. So. Well, you know, I, I've mentioned too on the podcast, every time that I got jumped, and there was the, the bad guys had weapons. I never once said, damn it, I wish I had a baseball bat too. I always said afterwards, man, if he didn't have that baseball bat, okay. I Because I was smart enough as a kid even to know that things escalate, you know, because I've seen guns when I was a kid. My grandmother got robbed at gunpoint right in front of me. And all I've seen all this. My one friend got shot and all this to, to death. And, uh, so I always know that, well, even if I had a baseball bat and he had a baseball bat, he may have dropped that bat and, and maybe pulled out a handgun. I mean, I just thought that way, whether it would have been true or not, who knows, right? Right. But, so my thought process, and I'm not saying I'm correct, it was just for me, is I know what I can do against these guys if it was one-on-one -on -one or if they didn't have the weapons, uh, but... I didn't have that option, all right? They had the weapons. I didn't. And, you know, these these heroic stories, and I, I, I took beatings, man. You get worked over. I mean, you survive. Sometimes I'll get a couple licks in, but I don't consider that I won in a traditional sense. You know, I survived. So I guess there's there's some sort of victory there. But, <laughs> you know, it, it's 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 never a pretty thing. Uh, at all when normally when weapons are involved you know sometimes i've come out of it 
unscathed. I was able to get the drop on the guy before he could get it on me. Um, but when you start talking multiple assailants, you know, it's, it's a whole, it's different. Okay. And I saw a video not too long ago. I only watched it for a few seconds because I stopped it. Okay. Because it was how to defend against the baseball bat. Now this, I don't go, I don't watch martial art clips on YouTube or anything. This just happened to be uh, on a, on a website that I was at that had absolutely nothing to do with anything about that. But somebody had posted this. I didn't even know what I was watching. I click it and then I see it. And you know, it, it, you could see that it was. I, I, I clicked it. I clicked out. I, I had a click. Uh, it, you couldn't do a. Uh, you had to go to actually YouTube to see the clip. Okay, they wouldn't allow like random or remote viewing or whatever they call it. So this this thing had like six million views, and I mean, he's showing how to defend against a baseball bat, but the guy that was swinging the baseball bat, I mean, he couldn't have swung it any slower. The law of gravity would have made it hit the ground. I mean, it was just ridiculous. I'm like, stop, okay, bullshit. And yet, you know, he had six million views on a technique that was just, I mean, if you're going to do it and you're confident that you've practiced this and now you're putting it on YouTube, have that guy swing that baseball bat full blast all the way, like he's sitting a home run, like he's Babe Ruth. Okay. After all, you're you're claiming that this technique's going to work in the street. Well, you don't even have the guts to do it on a damn uh, YouTube instructional video. So that irks me because that's putting people's lives in deadly danger. Because you, I've been attacked with baseball bats. You don't want that to happen to you, and especially if they start wailing on your head. This may be the last time you're going to walk. A friend of mine in grade school, his father got killed because he got hit in the head with a pipe, okay? Um, so I get hyper like I am right now because I don't. I think these people are a disgrace. They're disgusting for putting these dangerous techniques that are going to get somebody injured or killed. And sadly, the people that watch it don't know any better. They're going there for to learn something, and they see a cool move. But it's a bullshit move, okay? It, it's just not going to work. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, and, of course, you know, that kind of martial arts uh, chicanstery is hardly new, right? You know, there's, there's tons in the, in the sword world. There's tons of, oh, here's how you disarm a swordsman. And it's like, well, sure, here's how you disarm someone with a sword, but <laughs> not someone who's trained to use it. That's not the same thing. You know, it, it's just not going to happen. Um, and, again, you know, maybe you need – to practice a couple things here and there in case, well, shit, life has been cruel and here you are. But, you know, you're right. So many of the things that people get get handed um, are just going to get them maimed or killed. And and it is irresponsible. But, you know, I, I sometimes wonder, it's like, is it just because, do these people not, do these people know it's bullshit? Or do they, are they inside their own movie and they just don't know it? You know, back That's to the good- back to if you've never been punched in the face, maybe you do believe that people don't really get punched in the face. You know, I just, you know, I, I, I had like a good friend, I had a good friend, one of my early teachers, um, who uh, had said, you know, look, if I create a, a a fighting system for a set of rules that require us to hop on one foot while spinning in a circle, 
I'll, I'll come up with some fighting techniques for hopping on a foot blindfolded while spinning in a circle, <laughs> but it's going to really suck when I meet someone who doesn't have to hop. Right? <laughs> right. And, you know, and so I, you know, I think there's a lot of, a lot of truth to that. There's just, I think sometimes people are so enclosed in their own world that they don't ever stop to think like, well, how do I actually know this would work? Like, you know, and I, I don't know. It's, um, I think there's a certain jadedness that when you've been in martial arts long enough, you start to develop because you realize that, you know, um, Joe, back to your comment about perceived obsolescence, right? Um, there's a lot of reasons to study all this stuff, whether you believe it's, it's a practically obsolete or not. Um, but one danger to, to things where they're not being constantly pressure tested in the real world, or at least in some facsimile of it is, uh, it's a lot easier for bullshit to proliferate, you know, in a world where, in a world where people know what this stuff looks like, it's a lot harder for people to, to, uh, pass the sniff test if what they're selling is crap. So. Yeah, I think this has been really good self-defense. It's funny. I wasn't expecting this to be such a self-defense specific, <laughs> but it, 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 yeah. it, so it turned out to be a really good discussion with that. Well, if you draw a weapon, on, he's going to come right. at me with a sword. This is self-defense automatically, <laughs> right. you know, whether right. I want it to be or not. I mean, and, you know, and honestly, Joe, I think that's the point is that like when I teach, when we're teaching sword, and you've trained with me, when we're teaching swords or spears or whatever. You know, it's so divorced from, from 2022 that people think of it like, oh, it's really fun. And it's like movies. And then like, you know, I'm showing them that like the average sword fight lasts, you know, about one and a half seconds. And they're like, well, that doesn't look like the movie. Well, of course not. It's four feet of sharp steel, you stupid ass. Yeah. Um, but, but by the same token, I think the point is that, yeah, to us, it might seem fun. But you know what? In 1409 or 1609 or whatever, it's no different than, you know, a modern Marine practicing his, his profession. They might enjoy their training too, but the bottom line is that their profession's war and it's about ruthless efficiency and, and knowing that along with that comes, you know, the danger of lethality. And so, yeah, it, it doesn't really matter if it's a punch, a knife, a gun, or a sword. Self-defense is self-defense. And if you treat it like that, um, if you treat it like that, you get the most out of your training. If you don't, you're in the realm of sport combat and there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever, but you need to know that that's the, you, you've switched gears or you've lost the value of your martial art as martial art. Oh, you know, I, I can't, I, I agree completely. And, and for me, I never was really martial artist per se, you know, uh, but mine was a hundred percent about self-defense. Yes, there was a boxing sport. There was no catch wrestling sport. And I'm thankful for that because I learned the, the brutal, the effectiveness of, of this, not that a tame down virgin isn't good. Um, it just wouldn't have worked for me, you know, would have got me in right. trouble uh, right. and probably got me killed, you know, uh, without a doubt. So I'm with you on that because everything to me, uh, is self-defense. Now, I've mentioned this story before. I'm going to say it again. I don't want to mention the guy's name just because he's passed on, but I'll tell the story. Let's just put it this way. He could handle himself real well, okay? He was a boxer, and him and I are standing next to each other. We're at a place in Chicago, bar in Chicago, and one guy just starts running his mouth, 
he knew who I was. He knew who he was. Um, he knew that he couldn't win a fight, but then he's running his mouth, you know, um, saying that he'll, he'll fight either one of us. But like, he was telling me that I can't, I wasn't allowed to take him down. This is, so I'm laughing at this. I think this is really funny. Okay. Cause he's, he opened up his mouth. And now he's trying to talk his way out of it a little bit. Well, anyway, yeah. my friend, here's, here's the kicker to the story. It's really not about me. Cause I'm laughing. Well, my friend takes off. Okay. My boxer friend leaves. I'm like, what? I, mean, I don't get it. What? I mean, did he get pissed? I, I don't know. 10 minutes later, my boxer friend comes back. He had a gas can. He walks right behind me, opens up the gas can, starts squirting gas on this guy. He was going to light <laughs> him on fire. Okay. Okay. Now, here's a guy that right. he's going to beat the Back shit down. out of him. But now it's a street fight. You pissed him off. He went and got a gallon of gas or whatever the size was and was going to literally light this guy on fire. Oh, my and, God. Yeah. And that goes to show. Yeah, right. But this is, you know, this is now we're talking streets. Okay. we're t- Even though this was inside a place, it's still a, I call it a street fight. But sure. it was like, a, a, you've asked, you know, your mouth, this guy's mouth escalated it. And yeah, you ticked this guy off. So even with all of my boxer friends training, it's like, hey man, we're talking fight fight. So I'm, I'm gonna I would do what I gotta do. Unbelievable. Um, and I can honestly say it's the only time in my life I've ever seen anybody squirt gas on somebody and try to light them on fire. I mean, uh wow. I mean, it, it, so yeah, um, there is a difference. You have to divorce yourself from the sport or from the dojo or from the wrestling ring or, you know, the gym or the boxing ring and, and realize at times, man, uh, you just don't know what you're up against. And I think in all sorts of training, you, you just go into your training knowing that your training partner is going to stop at a certain point. Uh, you know that, well, there's other people around. But in the street, you just don't have that. And I think some people still bring that mentality in the back of their mind. They're like, well, if shit gets, you know, too deep, uh, I'll just quit. And I've heard people tell me this. Well, if I got into trouble, I'll tap out. In a street? Come on. I want the the guys covered you in gasoline. (laughs) I'll never... I'll never forget that as long as I live, because I've never seen anything like that. Um, it was just a shock to me. Uh, and, you know, and then I grabbed him and said, I can stop. This is nonsense. Because he had the lighter out and everything. I mean, this wasn't for show. He was going to do it. Um, it. I mean, it was like, are you kidding me? But, uh, oh, yeah, it, it, you just so you don't know, okay? Um, some people have a, well, I hate to use the term short fuse, but yes, some people have a short fuse, you know, and they'll, they'll go from zero to 100, you know, deadly 100 immediately. They don't play, they don't play around, you know? Um, So you got to be aware of that. And, and that's why I tell everybody that I train, uh, be prepared to die. I mean, because you don't know how far this is going to go. If you're not ready to die, then you need to just run away as fast as you can. Just get out of the situation or do whatever. Um, and I go into a whole long litany of things that you can do psychologically to prepare for this. We don't need to cover that today. We've, we've talked about it in the past, but yeah, no, this is, uh, 
and especially you with, with, you know, you're an expert at these weapons. You're probably the most knowledgeable in the, in the country on, on this stuff, without a doubt. Uh, these things are not, these are, you become a killing machine here, pal. Well, hey, I know we've been going for a while, but I wanted to have Greg talk specifically about his style and his school and about what people can, what they can do to train there and things like that, just to kind of, you know, bring the focus on that and help you pitch your stuff a little bit. Sure, sure. Well, the actual name of the martial art that we study is called Armizare, which just is Italian for the art of arms. It's what they called it in the 1400s. Um, You know, these martial art names always sound more exotic in their original language than... uh, when you hear it in, in English, but really it just means fencing um, or the art of arms. And uh, we um, train in everything from the medieval two-handed sword and the spear, armored combat, dagger, wrestling, uh, the rapier, rapier and dagger. Um, and we've been doing that here in Chicago since 99, but we've had a professional studio up in Ravenswood on the north side called Forteza Fitness and Martial Arts. And we opened that back in Oh boy, now, uh, 2012, 2012. So we are, uh, 11 years in, sorry, I still have, um, I still have fugue from the pandemic, but, uh, we're 11 years in and, uh, we're actually just, um, just expanding the studio now to add, uh, an archery range, uh, um, yeah, yeah. We're taking over the upstairs. We're putting in an archery range, which is a little separate from what we do, but certainly, uh, certainly overlapping interests. Um, and uh, that'll be that'll be opening up in January. So we're we're developing all that right now. Uh, but yeah, it's a five thousand square foot studio. We also host uh, a number of martial arts events for, with other instructors, other types of styles. Um, we have some folks who also teach African uh, stick and sword and uh, wrestling. Um, uh, by seminars, they come in like every every month or so and do a seminar for us and. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting experience. So it's that's at um, Forteza Fitness and Martial Arts, or ForteZaFitness.com is the website, um, and you can read about all the programs there. We we love to have visitors, so we love showing off what we do. But you can find plenty of video and whatnot on the website, or just always ping me. Joe, put, put all your information on the YouTube. Now, what are your hours, your days, and all of that? So we teach classes. Um, Monday through Thursday and Saturday, we, uh, you know, like most martial arts, it's pretty quiet except by appointment during the daytime. Uh, classes tend to run from about six to nine in the evenings. Um, Fridays, the first Friday of the month is our is a sparring night. So people want to see what this looks like when people are actually freeform fighting. They're welcome to pop in and, and take a look. Um, Saturdays, we're there from about 10 a.m. until three with everything from, you know, brand new classes for people in off the street to, to advanced classes. I always get asked, do you teach kids? We do teach kids. Um, we don't do stuff with children under 10 because they need to have a certain amount of both physical size and maturity for us to put even a nylon sword in their hands. Um, but uh, we do do kids classes and they are designed to not be a kiddie karate program. It's designed to kind of prep them so when they're old enough they can move into adult training at a realistic uh at a realistic skill set very good i, I weren't didn't you and i go there one time joe yeah we stopped in we we definitely checked it out i don't think i met greg though no we didn't we didn't no no 
No, Joe introduced me to somebody else, but I we we were we were only in there a couple minutes. I I don't remember was being it maybe there Keith, long. Joe. Yeah, it was Keith. Um, yeah, my old, my old business partner probably. Yeah, because he was talking. We met or something about me doing a seminar down there, which never came yeah. to fruition. I, I I don't know what happened, but that was a long yeah. time ago. Yeah, well, we we still should talk about that. Yeah. But yeah, he um yeah he uh I know had had a definite interest in in catch so. Yeah, I never seen him again. I mean, we didn't work out or anything. We just met yeah. up just to introduce and whatever. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, this has been interesting because the thing is, you know, I'm, I'm very cognizant of weapons, and I come from the other side of the, the, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the tracks, I guess. Whereas, I was the weapony. I guess I was yeah. the guy that used the weapons on, you know. Right. As opposed to right. so many martial art guys, you know, practice to be the weaponer. You know, they're going to use their their knife or their stick or whatever. Right. Um, so yeah, and and you know, Joe was talking about rules. Well, I'll call those things principles. And while so the principles of my 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 my, my fighting my is really what kept me alive. Okay having enough intelligence to know when to engage, when not to engage, but not being a sitting duck is the biggest thing I could tell people for me when you're empty, no weapons, you know, I don't want to sit there and just let you do this shit to me. Um, I'm going to try to create my angle. So where you, when you do attack, uh, you're not like Babe Ruth in the batter's box, you know, you're set and ready right. to go. You're going to have to, you know, I, I'm trying to lessen impacts and stuff. Um, that's if I get the opportunity to, to see it coming, you know, if I don't see it coming, you know, you got the drop on me, man, you got the big advantage, but you know, I'd like to hook up with Joe one of these days, come down there and watch one of your classes for sure. Oh, that'd be great. We'd love to have you. We'd love to have you. Yeah. Because it would be, uh, you know, I, I vaguely remember the place that it was nice. It was impressive. Um, yeah. I don't think you had mats though. Did you? We do. We, we do. do. Did they yeah. have mats back then, Joe? Uh, not to like a, like a wrestling room mat, probably what you're thinking, Tony. We did like fold-out mats, so they'll bring yeah, them Yeah, we've out. got the fold-out grappling mats. As opposed yeah, to yeah, like yeah, okay. Not yeah. that it matters because DuPage Krav Maga doesn't have wrestling mats either. They, they There's the fold-outs. Um, yeah. Jason's place is nice. They have the mats, okay, yeah. uh, full wrestling mats. Um, but, you know – Again, when Joe first started training with me, we, we were wrestling on concrete. When I learned, there was no wrestling mats. Uh, so, you know, it's probably not a good idea. You get banged up. But it does teach you how uncomfortable it can be, especially if you're on the bottom. Uh, you don't want to be on the bottom when it's <laughs> that uncomfortable and painful. And even on the top, you got to watch because you're, you're, you're used to – you, you you know, that's another reason why people are on their knees all the time. And I, you know, that's a pet peeve of mine, but especially if you're on gravel or rock or something, you're not even going to be able to be on your knees. That's why you got to get on your toes, press, press, pressure ride and all that. But um, yeah, no, for sure. I'd like to uh, make a trip one of these days. May we'll, we'll talk about it another time, yeah. but you know, I know the holidays are coming up and whatnot, but uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Be great. Absolutely. Always, always welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So Joe, do you have any closing thoughts? Oh man. Like I said, I could, you know, 
pump Greg with a million questions, actually. Um, but I think we covered a lot, actually, probably more important topics about, you know, we kind of got some, I think, realistic discussion about self-defense and, you know, um, so, but yeah, I mean, Greg, obviously you've been a scholar <laughs> studying these texts for, for decades. Yeah. So it's kind of like a, yeah. And I should mention, you've also published books too, correct? You should probably mention yeah, that I too. Have a, I have a publishing company called Freelance Academy Press, and I've, I've translated and uh, published some of these texts from the 1400s, as well as published the work of some of the other people on there. And uh, yeah, you know, it might be a, might be a fun, like follow-up podcast sometime, Tony, to, uh, like have me, uh, you know, feed Joe some of the images from some of these old wrestling manuscripts and, uh, you know, pop it up and, and see like what looks familiar to you or what doesn't and why you might or might not do something different from a catch point of view and just kind of show like, you know, how universal this stuff really is, um, you know. I'd people, like that. Yeah, I, th- I think it'd be great. I think it'd really show people that, you know, these these arts have got, you know, the, the humans, the human body hasn't changed. And so consequently, People of wrestling is a really old martial tradition and it, it remains a strongly consistent one because your body's not going to change. So, well, so. I'll, I'll oh, say this to that point. Sorry, Tony, to cut you off. But I'll, uh, that someone who was on our podcast, Rick Solo, who's uh, probably one of the premier Muay Thai instructors in the Chicagoland area, actually, he's probably like two blocks from you, uh, Greg. He's on Ravenswood as well. Um, okay. But there was a sweep that you sent me from a, one, an ancient, not ancient, but from one of the texts that you study, a foot sweep that is, it's used in Muay Thai, the exact same throw, you know? And, um, and, and actually another person who was on our podcast, uh, Joe Jute, who does pen jacks a lot. Um, literally all three of you have shown me the same sweep. (laughs) <laughs> and there was an online discussion about it very much to your point. But anyways, that yeah. just rang a bell with me. But anyways, yeah. sorry to cut you off. What were you saying? Well, uh, well, no, he says the bodies don't change. This is well, I mean, Dolly Parton might be an exception to that rule. Um, I don't, <laughs> you know, but uh, she just got a hundred million dollars, but from Jeff Bezos, but no, you know, but the, the, the body, the human body can only go in so many ways and so many things. I think the skills that we're probably better at isn't necessarily the quote unquote technique. It's all the attributes of it, you know, the right. speed, the, the movement, the reflexes right. and the, you know, the, the, the fine tuning of it, but also bear in mind, I don't know any of your books, but just books in general cannot capture all the subtleties. All right. And I know no, in catch, no, but, but in catch wrestling, for example, the old timers, the legitimate ones who appeared in books would show the move, but they weren't always showing it exactly correctly. And right. some didn't know it the right way, but many did, but they weren't going to tip it off. Okay. To right. somebody else. Uh, right. You're right. You know, so, but it's all, it's very difficult. Like even when I do videos, I can't cover every little um, variation or this or that, because I go in there and I'm going to show a move. And let's say I'm using Joe as a, demonstrator you know joe's just going to follow along but like when i'm at a seminar i can i'll see somebody do something i'll be like okay hold it if the guy does this now this is how you modify it so i'm sure in those books um that wasn't the only way they did that particular move they probably had variations exactly of course not and you know and you see that and sometimes you'll see 
you know, little variations of the same thing four different times. But even then, you know, it's like, it, it's funny, a um, couple of the ancient Greek texts are fascinating because they're not very good at describing things. But what they'll show is like, they'll tell you, you know, get in this hold and then wrestle from there. And, but I, you know, to my mind, what they're trying to show you is that you just have some of the stuff you just have to feel. You just mm-hmm. got to put yourself in the position and feel it. And that's not something that can be written. And so that's why I said at the beginning, you know, a large part of what we do is like detective work because we're filling in, you know, we're, it's, it's, we're doing necromancy, right? We're, we're yeah. figuring out how guys who've been in their grave for 600 years wanted to articulate this. Um, and it's fascinating. Sometimes it's frustrating as hell, but that's also why we spend a lot of time working with people who come from living traditions too, because, you know, you want to see, okay, well, yeah, I see what this looks like and I see what this might be like. Um, but you don't know what you don't know. So I can talk to a guy who does jujitsu. I can talk to a catch wrestler. I can talk to a Greco guy, right? I can ask all of them, Hey, how would you, a Salat guy, how would you do this? And I can look at that and I can see what's, what the commonalities are, you know? And, um, and then hopefully you get a better picture of what might be true, if that makes sense. So. No, that's a great way. That's a scholarly way of approaching it because you're inquisitive and you're trying to be all encompassing. And a lot of people won't, aren't like that, you know, and I, I like that in you. That's, that's to me terrific. Um yeah. You know, just like we have guys, well, like we're talking about Jason Bender. He studies with four or five different guys or whatever, you know, because he wants to see different approaches in different ways. Um, And, you know, I didn't have those abilities. You know, I didn't have the access to that. It didn't exist. Um, So I just worked with what I could and filled in the blanks. And, you know, through the years, you know, I kind of do like what you do. I've I've met a lot of great martial artists and uh, legends and, I ask them questions. How do you handle this? And how do you approach this? Um, Luthez used to talk about that. He'd be wrestling overseas uh, and he'd see a move. He'd see a guy do a move and he'd say, you know what? We can turn that into something. I'm going to remember what he did. When I get back home, I'm going to see if I can develop this into something more. Okay. Right. So that's why I would be interested in seeing these photos that you have or these books. Yeah. Yeah. Because I could say, okay, now here's what I would do or here's how I would augment it. Now, that doesn't mean that whoever posed in that book didn't know what I'm going to say. It, they just didn't show it in that photo. But, you know, exactly. that, but they can only show you so much. And, right, you know, right, and, right, right. And that's the thing. I think all good fighters, all good martial artists are basically pirates, right? Yeah. They see something that works and they go, I'm going to steal that. And I'm going to figure out how to make that fit in with what I do. And like you said, I'll augment it. I'll make something more out of it. But, you know, like I didn't have that answer, but now I do. And, um, you know, and I think that's the thing that, that people modernly forget is they forget that creative and that inquisitive component. They just want to learn moves. Yeah. And it's like, but if you learn principles, you can, you can create an infinity of moves. That's what I always say. You're exactly right. You don't teach yeah. everybody the songs, you teach them the music and then they can learn and write their own songs. Right. Right. Yeah. I explained it to my, my son a lot. Cause like I said, at the beginning of this, you know, He's a jazz musician. And I tell him, you know, martial arts are jazz. But just like just like you had to do all that classical band that you didn't really like as much to get good enough to become a jazz musician, you know, to learn those structures and forms. Well, that's what I teach. And then hopefully once they're fighting, that's where the jazz comes in. 
Yeah, the improviser. Yeah, it's all improv. It's all improv. So. Yeah, because every time we get into a fight, it's going to be something different. Okay, it's. I mean, a street fight, especially because it could be weapons, it could be the location, it could be the, you know, gas how can. you're feeling, huh? It could be a gas can. Yeah, right. It could be anything, right? But if you're if you're injured, you're going to cancel your 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 fight. But if you're injured, you can't you can't cancel that street fight. Okay, you still got to go through with it. Now, yeah. now, now, how do you handle that? You know. So yeah, it's a whole different world. But anyway, Greg, we'll, we we've been rapping for a long time. It was great to see yeah. you. We'll keep in touch for sure. We'll uh, we'll Joe and I will stop down at your gym. Sounds great. Sounds great. We'd love to have you. And okay, yeah, everybody will see you next week, guys. Yeah, and if you want to do a part two, just let us know because we could keep going. So, uh, okay, right. so we'll what, now, Joe, what, Joe, what times we brainstorm that and we'll we'll play a stump the Tony with uh with <laughs> ancient wrestlers. That sounds that sounds like it that, could be fun, maybe right for the yeah. holiday. It's awesome. Like, they used to have stump the band. Well, we're gonna do you know stump the wrestler guy. Yeah, but like now, what time is this seminar on Saturday now? One thirty. So it's shifted just a little bit later. So three thirty. Yeah, one thirty to yeah, I guess it would be to three thirty. Okay, I got to change that on the website, but I got to call the nursing home because, you know, they were. And we can talk after this if this doesn't work. Let's you and I we can. No, oh, I, you know I got to do the seminar, so let's do the seminar. But uh, but yeah, I've just got to because the following week they're they're having a Thanksgiving get together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's you know, anyway. But that we'll talk later. But listen, guys, nice to see you. We'll see you soon, Greg. Yeah, All right. Thanks for having Thank me, guys. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.